PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. It was a misinterpretation of the original validation paper. They go out and they fall and have an injury. We felt like those people are being misdiagnosed. We don't necessarily need a new test. We just need a new paradigm. This is not a single cause disorder, fall risk in general, and impaired postural control. Welcome to this PTJ podcast discussion, Identifying Future Fallers. It's not black and white. This month, two authors of recent papers on balance assessment join PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick to discuss this topic. Our participants are Dr. Leland Dibble of the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Ms. Susan Muir of the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hello. We're here today to discuss the issue of falling in the older adult. The authors with whom we're speaking today have taken a different approach to predict future falls with the hope of providing intervention and reducing the number of fall-related injuries. Leland Dibble and colleagues published a paper in the March issue of Physical Therapy, Diagnosis of Fall Risk in Parkinson's Disease, and Analysis of Individual and Collective Clinical Balance Interpretation. Thank you for asking me to be involved, and I appreciate the opportunity to be involved with both of you discussing this. Lee looked at patients with Parkinson's disease. He wanted to determine if a person without a history of falls is at risk for future falls. I am also pleased to introduce Susan Muir. Great, thank you. Susan and her colleagues published a paper in the April issue of Physical Therapy. This paper is entitled, The Use of the Berg Balance Scale for Predicting Multiple Falls in Community-Dwelling Elderly People, a Prospective Study. I should also point out that one of Susan's co-authors is Dr. Katherine Berg, the physical therapist who developed the Berg Balance Scale. Susan and her colleagues, like Dibble, were interested in being able to predict future falls. I would like to thank both authors for participating in this discussion, and I compliment them on emphasizing the value of calculating likelihood ratios. I'm going to give us an example about likelihood ratios and use the Berg Balance Scale A perfect Berg balance scale score is 56, and that indicates there's no functional balance disability. If the Berg scale were designed to predict falls, it would have a very high positive likelihood ratio. More likely that a low score is found in a person within the fall group. The Berg would also have a small negative likelihood ratio. More likely that a high Berg score is found in the persons in the non-fall group. Susan, for you, a high positive likelihood ratio would enhance the chance of a low Berg balance score being found in a person who fell in the subsequent year. Your data, however, suggests that some fallers had a high Berg balance scale score and others had a low score. Definitely in the data from my studies, the range of Berg balance scores were the same between the group of fallers and non-fallers. Another part of looking at studies that evaluate likelihood ratios is partly ensuring that we've evaluated the diagnostic accuracy of the measurement tool that we're using such that hopefully it provides information to us better than that expected by chance. The second part of the study was to evaluate the Berg Balance Scale as a dichotomous format and to see if that was able to accurately 
distinguish between people with or without a history of falls. And it actually did not perform very well in that format. And one of the important results from the study is that the scale should not be used in a dichotomous format. Can you explain what that means, being used as a dichotomous format? Sure. That within the literature, a score of less than or equal to 45 indicates a threshold of increased fall risk, and those people who scored 46 and above were at a low risk for falls. Now, one of the reasons to look at this was the original authors of the Berg Balance Scale actually never recommended that it be used in that format, but that has been the format that it most frequently has been presented in the literature for research and definitely in the clinical setting. So, like I said, looking at this cut point of 45, it actually did not predict future fall risk well. Sensitivity was around 60%, so not a useful value for identifying future fall risk. And the next phase was to look at, is there useful diagnostic information that I can take from the Berg Balance Scale, though keeping it in a continuous format? And that's where I evaluated diagnostic potential using bands of scores. The reason why I used bands of scores rather than single scores was partly due to sample size to make sure I had adequate number of people in each group. Using a multi-level scale is actually the ideal format within which to use likelihood ratios and is probably the only format that actually allows me to use practical diagnostic information. This is Lee Susan. I interested oh, to comment. Wait, yes, I wanted to compliment you on the approach that you took. Thank you very uh, much. My impression was that, that the original Berg Balance Scale, given that range of scores, 0 to 56, was, as you stated, not intended to be a dichotomous score, and it doesn't make much sense statistically or clinically to take a nice, robust picture of a gradient of fall risk and then dilute it down to a yes or no or black yes and white or no. uh, okay. response. Yeah, yeah, it's very true, and. It was a misinterpretation of the original validation paper where they used that 45 as a means to calculate a relative risk. This was one point that Catherine was more than happy to have clarified. It was never advocated as that single cut point, but unfortunately it's become a wee bit entrenched in how that scale has been used practically, which is unfortunate. Going back to my paper as well, I didn't actually present negative likelihood ratios. The negative likelihood ratios that I did calculate were actually all around one. So they actually didn't provide any useful information. Therefore, there is no score at the Berg Balance Scale that actually will indicate a lower fall risk, which is very sobering. Susan, to clarify that, is that meaning that somebody that scores 56, you would still place at potential risk for falls then? Yeah, they would still have at least 30 to 35% background risk for falls. It's very interesting, and I think it's a really nice way for us to segue into Lee's paper because, Lee, your study emphasized the need for a combination of tests, and you really were interested in the people who got misclassified as not being at risk for falls when they were at risk for falls. So one of the practical examples we used in the paper was experiences we've had clinically where we've tested a person with the Berg or other clinical balance tests and they've tested above whatever cut point has been set and accepted 
clinically, not that we're validating that those are correct, and uh, have that person be above the cut point that they were not at risk. Will they go out and they fall and have an injury? So we felt like those people are being misdiagnosed. If you rely on interpretation of a dichotomous choice and say, okay, this person's negative on the test, they're fine, and they go out and fall, then you've misdiagnosed a fall risk in that patient. So we wanted to test our clinical means by which we could better identify those people at risk. It made sense to us from a clinical reasoning standpoint to to say, okay, let's try to minimize the false negatives, the misdiagnosis of those participants. So we do a battery of tests. We don't rely on just one individual clinical balance test. We think the Berg is a reasonable test, but we have concerns that the person is required to be in a stationary base of support. So we don't think that by itself provides the optimal balance test. So we use a dynamic gait index as an additional measure that provides more dynamic tasks. We also utilize the functional reach and a variation on the timed up and go. So the outcomes appear to be that there is better value in minimizing the false negatives, those misdiagnoses of fall risk, by including the interpretation of more than one positive test. Okay, so I'm going to be idealistic. I can imagine that there could be a mega test that incorporates a number of factors, takes the sensitive components of a series of physical performance exams, and we come up with a composite test that looks at many factors that contribute to the risk of falling. And then a certain score indicates that you get your environment changed, and another score indicates that you shouldn't walk any longer because the risk is too high. Is that too idealistic of me to think? I would say that potentially we have some of that already. I don't know if we need another test. I think that many of the tests that we looked in our paper, the Berg balance scale and other tests do a fairly reasonable job. But given the fact that this is not a single cause disorder, fall risk in general and impaired postural control, I don't know if they can do better. But I think that if we utilize the history the presence of visual deficits, the presence of somatosensory deficits, things that aren't accounted for in these physical performance tests or clinical balance tests. Practically speaking, how long would it take to do the DGI, the Berg balance, the functional reach, and the timed up and go? You know, if you did all four tests, how long does that take? So we do that battery of tests within our clinical examination. We typically have a approximately an hour to an hour and a half scheduled with the patient so you were to do those tests by themselves and do nothing else, probably uh, half an hour to 40 minutes. The benefit is that we fold the functional reach into the Berg balance scale. And then, Susan, how long does it take to do the Berg balance scale score? About 15 minutes. But I also want to, I agree with Lee that we don't necessarily need a new test. We just need a new paradigm that looks at postural control or a system that requires integration from multiple systems. So I had a question in our previous communications. We talked a little bit about the evidence for improving postural control and decreasing fall risk. By doing these studies, both of us have made the assumption that we can do something about it afterwards. And Susan, you're probably best able to answer that in the terms of the elderly. The most recent Cochrane review on interventions to prevent falls, they did find that exercise and physiotherapy is beneficial. The exercise program involves 
progressive strengthening and balance retraining and walking program. So it takes in the bigger view of postural stability. You know, I think the literature is more sobering in the context of a neurologic disorder like Parkinson's disease. Mm. There is less strong evidence to say that we can diminish the risk. There are a few studies that try to measure risk and try to measure number of falls and show that there is some potential decrease in the number of falls, but they're small numbers. I'm kind of a cynic that we can actually decrease the fall risk based on the intrinsic motor abilities of that patient. We can do things to help the patient understand their risk and also help their caregivers manage that risk. But in some cases, I don't think that we can take away that risk at more severe disease. Yeah, that is sobering, Lee. I would hope that somebody who's listening to the podcast would have ideas of future types of novel intervention that might give us better results. There are some studies that are looking at vibration, foot plates that vibrate, if that's some somatosensory augmentation, virtual reality, mm-hmm. some technologies that may be able to augment a person's overall balance competence. It would mm-hmm. be interesting to see how technology plays into the treatment. I'm certainly stuck in thinking that we've got exercise, we've got sensory retraining, uh, we've got education, but it would be nice to have another group of technologically advanced treatments that we could provide to these patients also. Well, this certainly argues for the development of a test that we can trust. And as you say, it can be a composite of current exams, but it certainly argues for more research on this topic, doesn't it? Definitely. Either of you have a final comment that you would like to make as we wrap up? I guess we'll start with Susan. Um, I guess my one comment to be made is that there is a gradient of risk. We need to be aware that falls, they are multifactorial and that we can't rely on just a single test trying to alter the course of someone's potential fall experience. And Lee? I guess I would just echo Susan's comments that the purpose of their study, in my opinion, was to provide a broader perspective about how the Berg balance scale should be utilized. Our study in a more focused population, but with more tests, the idea was similar, that we were not wanting people to interpret just one test, but consider multiple tests based on what the individual presentation of the patient would be like. Although I might have sounded cynical about the uh, ability to address fall risk, I wasn't intending to. There is the ability to address that risk, and certainly in some patients, there is the definite ability to make them better. The focus is really, can we figure out who's at high risk or who may fall and then offer an intervention rather than having to have the patient come to us and say, I've fallen twice in the past year and therefore I have a problem. And I think both of you have emphasized the need to get away from a single threshold. I hope that you've helped the audience as much as you've helped me understand that it's really not two boxes. It's not black and white. It's not at fall risk or not at fall risk, but it's a gradient. And I hope that we have helped Susan with Dr. Berg's concern about the use of the Berg balance score being a dichotomous yes, no, and using the 45 threshold. I hope that this podcast helps physical therapists and other clinicians get away from the use of the tool for that purpose. I'm really excited about the opportunities that are available for research in the future in this area. So thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. Thank you for the opportunity. 
This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We invite your feedback on this podcast. Do you have any comments, topics you'd like to hear in the future? Let us know via email, ptj at scienceaudio.net, or voicemail, 626-593-7825. Visit PTJ online at www.ptjournal.org.